Be seated. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 18. Yes, one more message in Luke chapter 18. Remember that around Easter time, we skipped ahead to the later relevant chapters of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And now later, we're back uh, in Luke 18 and 19 for the next couple of weeks as we wrap Luke up. We're going to look at two stories in Luke 18 today. One which illustrates how we come to Christ, and another which explains and encourages us to stick with Christ. They both tell us that we must know ourselves and we must know our God. That's the way John Calvin began his magnum opus, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. The first sentence is, Basically, all the wisdom that we can possess consists of knowing ourselves and knowing our God. Two stories. The first, coming to Christ, it's the story of blind Bartimaeus at the end of the chapter. Let's read these verses together, starting in verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. He called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. The first thing I want us to note is that we believe this is a real story. The gospel writers keep tipping their hand, letting us know that these are real stories when they give little historical detail that seems of little consequence to the story. You see this in Mark's account of this passage. Blind Bartimaeus is in Mark 10. And there, in verse 46, it tells us that Bartimaeus was Timaeus' son. Now why mention Bart's dad's name? Well, it's likely not because Timaeus was famous. He wasn't. I don't think there's any other mention of him in Scripture. It's instead to emphasize that these are real people. It's almost like Luke is is saying, reading between the lines, in parentheses here, and you can go check this stuff out. You could go to Jericho and find a guy named Bartimaeus who will tell you the story. You, You could go and find out that his dad was Timaeus. By name, you can see these things. These stories are real. And this is a real story of a man who is blind. Now, you have to understand something of the cultural context of the blind in this society of the first century. It was expected that they would put themselves out in a public place, a prominent place, and then they would beg for money, for food, for whatever it takes to to live. Today, panhandling may be frowned upon by society or by the police, but, but in this culture, it was normal. There was no welfare system. This was the system. 
you got yourself to a prominent place and you begged for your basic survival. The point is, this guy understands helplessness. This guy understands need. This guy understands that process of asking and receiving. We said that this is like how Jesus describes us coming into the kingdom. We come in as what? Children. Remember that back in verses 15 to 17 of this same chapter. He said, you come in as children, infants literally, or you don't come in at all. You come in as naked and desperate, needy. You come in receiving, not giving. That's how we enter the kingdom. Well, the story goes like this. At first, this is a day like any other day. But then something unusual happens. He notices, this blind man notices commotion going about around him. He notices that there's a crowd bigger than usual on the road in front of him. So he asks about it and finds out that it's because of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. And he must understand what this means. He must have heard about the previous miracles. Even some healing of the very same problem this man has, his blindness. So he cries out to Jesus. He can't get to Jesus. He can't do what others have done, walking up to Jesus, trying to touch Jesus like others. He has to just call out, Jesus! His only hope is that Jesus will turn his attention toward him, that Jesus will ask him to come to him, or Jesus would go to him. And his cry must have been inordinately loud or obnoxiously loud. Now, we've all been around people who, for the context, are much louder than is appropriate. There's even a kind of preaching, right, that's louder than it should be. You know, I, I could yell right now in a way that you would, it would make you uncomfortable. I, I could start yelling! And you would just go, eh, stop. And I would be embarrassed, Right? There's a kind of loudness that's just inappropriate for the context. And so for whatever reason, these people want to quiet him down. They want to shut him. Be quiet. It might be because Jesus is teaching right then and they want to hear him. It might be they think it's inappropriate for you to draw all the attention to yourself as if you're the only one in the crowd. They may, may think Jesus is too important for you. But whatever the case is, it's culturally uncouth to be this loud and to be this persistent because it says the crowd kept telling him this. In the Greek tense, that's clear. It's, in the English, it says they were telling him this. That's ongoing. It's not they told him this like it's once. They kept telling him this. And then verse 39, it says that he persisted all the more, all the more. He got all the louder. Did it all the more frequent. He's loud and he's careless about what others think because he knows who this is. You see in verse 38, those pregnant words, loaded with meaning. He calls him Jesus, which is just his given name, yeah. But remember, we saw at the beginning of Luke what Jesus means. It means God saves. Yeshua. He says he's the son of David. He's the fulfillment of that line, the promises of David and his offspring that one day there would be an eternal king, a, a king that's greater than David, a king who is David's Lord. He 
calls him that son of David and asks him to have mercy on him. He's bold because he knows who this is and he's bold because he's desperate. He can't fix himself. There's no doctor that'll do a surgery that'll fix his blindness. This is it. Either Jesus heals him or he remains in blindness the rest of his life. But he's full of faith. In Mark's account, you see this little detail that seems inconsequential, but it's not. In Mark's account, it says that he threw aside his outer garment and then walked to Jesus, or was led to Jesus. Now, dropping his coat may seem unimportant, but it shows something of his expectancy about being healed. You see, blind people don't throw things to the side where they can't find them again. Blind people have things in their possession. They have things within arm's reach. They put things in a familiar place so they know how to get it again. He throws his coat to the side as if he expects that he'll go to Jesus, then return to his coat and be able to see it, be able to find it. You see the expectancy there? Don't you love the little details these gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give to us? It's history But there are these interpretive clues in the history about what's going on. Well, this man is not only healed at the end of the story, but he praises God. Verse 43, he follows Jesus. So this is salvation and discipleship wrapped up in his healing. It's not just healing. Some healings are just healing. Remember the nine lepers. They didn't return to give thanks to Jesus. They were healed, but they weren't saved. This guy's healed and saved, and he's a Christ follower. So these elements of the story, elements of blindness, and need, and faith, and healing, and worship, and discipleship, these describe conversion. This is a picture of everyone's conversion story, no matter if they have physical sight or not. You see, blindness in Scripture is so often a word picture for our spiritual condition. Let me give you some examples. There are several Old Testament passages that describe blind eyes and hard hearts as going together. So the blind eyes here are not physical blind eyes, they're spiritual blind eyes. It's not a literal hard heart, like that's a heart disease. That's a spiritual disease that we all have. The Old Testament talks about idols being idols of blindness and idols of deafness. We are like the idols we worship, therefore we're at times blind and deaf, according to Deuteronomy 4. In the gospel accounts, more than once, Jesus called the Pharisees blind hypocrites. They go together. They're spiritually blind. We saw that in the rich young ruler, even though the word blind isn't used. In Luke 18, it's clear that this rich guy is blind to his spiritual need. Paul, it says in Acts, was sent to the Gentiles so that God would, listen to this, Acts 26, he would open their eyes so that they would turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Spiritual blindness. Do you see your spiritual need to be this desperate? Is blindness a good description of how you would describe your natural spiritual state? If you say, 
I can't believe. I want to believe. I actually want to believe, but I, I can't seem to get there. I can't seem to get to believe. I would say, friend, this is exactly what this passage is saying. I know you can't. You can't in your own strength. This passage is saying that God must do the miraculous work of giving spiritual sight. Just like this blind man couldn't do anything to get himself seeing, he only called out to Jesus for help. So you do the same. It's impossible for you to see your need just like the rich man earlier in this chapter. Remember Jesus said it's like trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle to get a rich man or any of us to see our need for Christ. It takes a miracle. So here's what we're asking Jesus to do when we ask him to open our eyes. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, it says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But here's the miracle. Verse 6, the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness in creation, the one who said, light be, and it was, that same one has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Has he done that in you? If not, pray. Pray for it. Pray that he would say, light, let there be in your heart. And you would see, you would see Christ. You would see him as glorious. Until he does that, pray and keep looking at Christ. Keep looking at him. Keep looking at him. Keep looking at him until he shows you that Christ is able and glorious. And notice, again, that there's nothing this blind man could do to fix himself up before he came to Christ. All he could do is cry out for help. There's no getting a little bit of sight in coming to Jesus asking to be healed of your blindness. There's no restoring ourselves in some sort of way morally, cleaning ourselves up a little bit morally before we come to Christ and then hoping he forgives the rest. We come with our sin. That's why the idea that some are so sinful they can't receive Christ is so antithetical to the true gospel. Those who really understand their sin are in a prime place to come to him. If he has done this in you, oh, rejoice. Nothing is greater. Remember that from Luke chapter 10 where the disciples came back to Jesus and they had cast out demons and they had healed the sick and they were so excited about it and Jesus said, this is great, but don't rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Not that ministry fruit isn't good, not that it isn't reason to rejoice, but it is nothing like this, that your names are written in heaven. It's settled. You're forgiven. There's nothing better than being saved. Remember this man followed him? Follow him. If God has done this to your spiritual eyes, given you sight, then follow him. Follow him like this former blind beggar did because, Christian, you're not a blind beggar anymore. You're not blind. You can see. Follow him. Follow him, serve him, get busy, and fight for more sight. Fight to see him, fight to behold him. Go to his word and stare at him. He has given you sight so that you might see him. Keep seeing him and see more of him. 
like it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we now have an unveiled face, and so we're beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The mirror is the word of God, I think. We're beholding in this mirror the glory of the Lord, and as we're beholding it, it's reflecting back on us, and we're being transformed to that image from glory to glory. We're being transformed to the image of the one that we behold in this book, Christ. All right, that's the first story. Now let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. For our second story, a parable. It's about sticking with Christ. The first, about coming to Christ. The second, sticking with Christ. It's the parable of the widow. Verse 1, it says, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I'll give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she'll wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, many of us, I think, think that this passage Passage's primary message is about persistence in prayer, specifically for us to keep asking for the same thing over and over. But I want to suggest that this parable is more about perseverance in general than it is about the cumulative power of repetition in specific prayer requests. Now, let me qualify that. Let me say up front, I think we can and should keep praying for some things when we pray them for his glory, according to his kingdom coming, according to him building his church, for his namesake, all those things, and praying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We can keep praying for a specific single request. Like, I keep praying for my kid's conversion. I keep praying about the spouse that they might marry someday. I don't say, God, I told you that once. I know you wrote it down, or, or you don't even need to write it down. Never mind. You have it up in your brain, so not a brain. I know you don't have a brain, but you know what I mean. I don't need to tell you again. No, I keep repeating it. But I think most of us are emphasizing the wrong thing in a passage like this in Luke 18. What I mean is, it is not right for us to think that persistence itself is powerful. Persistence is not powerful. It's not that eventually God can get swayed by my consistency or my persistence. Some people treat faith like this. Where if I have enough faith, it'll be awarded to me what I'm praying for. Faith is not something that's measured by God. And if we have enough of it, then he grants what we're asking for. It's not, fa fasting isn't like this either. Prayer is good, some people think, but prayer with fasting gets it done. 
And if I can show God how much I mean it and how much I need it and, and how much it's right by fasting, then he'll have to do it? No. God isn't manipulated like that. Prayer requests are not made more potent by the number of words. We can tuck that away. It's in Matthew 6, 7. Jesus says, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. We shouldn't think that God is normally reluctant to answer our prayer requests and to do us good until we show him how much we mean it and how much we need it and how much we want it. Now, Elijah actually mocks this kind of persistent praying, at least to false gods, in 1 Kings 18. It's kind of a funny example. There he's contrasting the biblical true God of Yahweh with the false god of Baal. And so he's having a duel with the prophets of Baal as to which god is real and which god is imaginary. So the prophets of Baal call on Baal and nothing happens. And they call on Baal again and again and again and nothing happens and nothing happens and nothing happens. And so here's where Elijah makes fun of them. He mocks them. Holy mockery. It must have been because he's a prophet. But, but it's mockery. You can look it up on your own later if you want. 1 Kings 18 verse 27 is the, the key verse there. Essentially he says to these prophets, maybe try a little bit louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Keep going. Keep asking. Maybe he hasn't yet heard you. Maybe your God is sleeping. And then, in the Hebrew, it's very clear. He uses bathroom language. You know this? He says, maybe your God is in the can. That's what he says. He's occupied. But the Hebrew word is a very, very specific kind of occupied. He's in the bathroom. Maybe your God is in there. Just keep knocking. Maybe eventually he'll come out. Maybe eventually he'll finish. Maybe eventually he'll light a match and be done. He's mocking them. It's your new favorite verse, isn't it? At least for the high schoolers who are not in the youth group right now. Now, part of Elijah's point is that you don't have to keep clamoring with the biblical God. He heard you. He's not busy. He's not elsewhere. He's not distracted. He's not occupied. He's not juggling things. He's not sleeping. He heard you the first time. That doesn't remove persistence, but it puts persistence in a new light. It's not like he doesn't hear you until it's the eighth one or the tenth one or the one hundredth one. <laughs> So let's dig a little bit more in Luke 18 and see if we can kind of understand this parable in its own context. What, what is it saying and what isn't it saying? Well, notice how it ends. Verse 8. When Jesus gives parables, a lot of times uh, he gives an interpretive key at the beginning or at the end. In this one, he gives it at both the beginning and at the end. At the end, in verse 8, we have an interpretive key. Will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? Which means that the parable that he just gave has to do with something about enduring faith. Will he find you still believing when he comes back? That's partly what the parable is about. 
Notice how it begins. Another interpretive key, verse 1. He says that we should at all times pray and not lose heart. Now, the parable clearly is related to prayer. But I think prayer is just one specific example here of an overall relationship to God. His aim is that we not lose heart. When we lose heart, we give up on many things in the Christian life, one of which is prayer. You begin to think that he isn't there, that he isn't listening, that he doesn't care, that he doesn't hear. The overall concern, though, for Jesus here is, will we give up? Will we be discouraged? Will we give up on prayer or Bible reading or the church or or other Christians in general? goal is not that we not lose heart. And this fits with the other stories in Luke 18, I think. Remember, we've been saying that there's an overall theme in Luke 18 with these various stories. They're talking about similar things. In verse 9 and following, it's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the tax collector, remember, he's justified because unlike the, the, the Pharisee, he brings nothing to the table in his approach to God. He only beats on his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He has nothing to commend, nothing to offer, only that he needs mercy. He's justified. Verse 15 and following, we already talked about this this morning, children. Children are an example of how you enter the kingdom of God. You come needy and naked and desperate and receiving, or you don't come at all. Verse 18 and following of Luke 18 is the rich young ruler, and this is a reverse example, how not to enter the kingdom of heaven. You don't come trusting in your riches. You don't come trusting in your righteousness. That's why Jesus gave him the law, so he would see eventually his need. We looked this morning at verse 35 and following of blind Bartimaeus who cries aloud in the street. He's pleading with Jesus to heal him. He has nothing to bring, no way of even getting to Jesus except that he'd be led. So how do verses 1 through 8 of Luke 18 fit with the whole chapter? The helpless widow is pleading for justice. And Jesus assures her that justice will come. In other words, there are connecting themes of need and lowliness and bold but humble faith. See, she fits in with the story. It's not just a prayer parable. It's a parable about persevering faith. It's a parable about how we approach God. It's a parable about believing in him and continuing to believe in him despite what things might seem or feel. It's also similar to Luke 11. Just thumb back there. This is the parable, I'm sorry, the the passage that talks about the Lord's Prayer, or what we might call the Disciples' Prayer. If you go down to verse 9, you can see that Jesus there gives these well-known words, keep knocking, keep seeking, keep asking, and it will be given to you. It sounds like persistence in prayer, and it is. But back in verse 2, he taught us what the aim of our prayer should be that his name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come. And then if you go past verse 9 to verse, verse 11 and 12, it tells us there that he won't give us a stone if what we need is bread. We can trust what he gives us 
That doesn't mean we don't ask, but it means we trust at the end of the day what he does decide to give us because he knows better than we do. Sometimes we do need bread and we ask for a car. We need bread and we ask for a mansion. He overrules us often. He's wise. We're not. So it's not that persistence is powerful. It's that we should keep trusting a powerful God who will always consistently do what is best and what is right in his timing and for his glory according to his kingdom to build up his church and to care for his saints. Trusting him includes continuing to pray to him. So yes, keep praying. But the parable itself here in Luke 18 isn't so much an explanation of how things work with God as much as it is, in a way, a contrast of how things work with God. You see, the helpless, wronged widow is a comparison for how we should pray and how we should relate to God in a sense. She keeps coming. She keeps believing. But there's a huge contrast between the unjust judge and God. Jesus' main point, I think, is that God is not like this judge. God is not bothered to hear our requests. He does not only finally give in to our cries when we've bothered him enough. He does not give in to us so that we'll shut up like this judge did with this persistent widow. It contrasts the wicked judge with God. Jerem Bars has a great book on prayer. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to get it and read it. It's called The Heart of Prayer. Remember, Jerem Bars was with us not too long ago, maybe six months ago or so. I'd like to read what he said about this passage. If you were here when he was here, hear this with his sweet and gentle British accent. I, I won't attempt it, but after you know, hearing someone like that, I don't, now when I read his books, I hear everything written in his voice. I, I don't know if you do that too. If so, this will help uh, if you can hear it in his voice. He said, God is completely different from this unjust judge. The judge thinks of people's complaints and cries for justice as bothersome interruptions, whereas God delights in listening to his beloved people. The judge listens to the widow only because he does not want to keep, have to keep hearing her demands. God, in contrast, does not need to be worn down by your constant requests. The unjust judge has to be manipulated by the widow we are not, by our own prayers, twisting God's arm, nor are we causing him to stop being reluctant to us. We are praying to a God who hears us gladly. When we come to him with our troubles, we can be sure that he will hear us with immediate sympathy. We are promised that our Heavenly Father has the will and the power to act quickly on behalf of his beloved people. That's a good word. So let me summarize this section, this parable of the persistent widow. We must not give up on God. Christians, we must not waver in our faith. Jesus is issuing a clarion call for perseverance. Persevere. 
Are you waning in your commitment? Are you waning in your faith? Are you beginning to doubt and entertain doubts even further? Don't. Don't. Be faithful when he returns. Despite how much it seems like God doesn't hear or doesn't care until he returns, we must not doubt that he hears and that he cares and that he acts and loves on behalf of those who are his. He wants to hear from us. That's amazing. It's only because of the blood of Christ. But through the blood of Christ, he's eager to hear from us. We can come to his throne of grace boldly. So pray. The Psalms are loaded with people wondering whether he hears. How long, O Lord? How long will you turn your face away from us? How long will you hide your face? Christian, you're not the first one to feel like he isn't hearing, like he isn't answering, like he isn't working, like he isn't caring. Go to those Psalms. Hear him speak through his servants of old and let them walk you through this struggle of having a God who's invisible. We can't see him. He doesn't speak to us like like a man speaks with his friend. Not for most of us. He did with, yeah, Abraham and Moses and others, but he hasn't spoken to me that way. He's spoken to me in his word. And that means I have to take his word and hear it personally and intimately, and then I have to trust it. I have to trust that it's real even when it doesn't feel like it's real. All answers will come in his wise timing, not ours. We, we can't see it right now. We can't see it all together. We can't put all the pieces together. We think we know what's best and we think we know that this thing isn't good at all. But he's God. We're not. We pray whatever we want according to his will. We pray nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And lo and behold, sometimes he takes us up on that offer. He does his will, not yours. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. It's all in his wise timing, not ours. Justice will come. Remember, that's a big part of what this woman is praying here. Justice. She's praying for justice, justice to come. Justice will come. But it may not come in this life. It may not be righted now or in 10 years or in 100. But it will. Trust the judge. Trust that he will make it right for his people. Justice will come. And our greatest concern for justice, or at least what should be our greatest concern for justice, has been settled at the cross. Justice and mercy met together where Christ was the substitute sacrifice for us. Justice has been met and we go free. Justice has been met and no one can condemn us. No one can say anything, not even Satan himself. No one can condemn or separate us from his love. And until he returns, let's keep praying for his return. Let's not take our eyes off of that. When things here aren't ultimate, when marriages aren't fulfilling and kids are disappointing, when jobs are frustrating, when trials abound, we tell ourselves again, he is not here. He has not yet returned. We're not done. 
but he is coming. So we pray like John does at the end of Revelation. Our Bibles end like this. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. Life's hard, right? Yeah, I know. He's coming, though. You say, not soon enough. I know John said the same thing as he was exiled in the island of Patmos, probably there to die. He wrote some last words, and included in those last words were, oh, come, come. 